You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, August 20th, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. We have a double this day in history. Uh, 1975, Viking program. NASA launches Viking 1 towards Mars. And in 1977, the Voyager program. NASA launches awesome. Voyager 2 spacecraft. Voyager. The one with the disc on it with, with all the pictures and the music and the sounds of the Earth and so forth. The Chuck Berry. Yeah. Yep. Send more Beatles. Chuck Berry. That's the one that has... Uh, like the size chart of how big a human would be standing next to the actual right. spacecraft. Right. The man right. and the woman naked. And didn't yeah. Sagan have a hand in that? Yes. There's also, the, did you guys know they put a little monkey inside the spacecraft? <laughs> oh, what was its name? Uh, his name was Stabby. Stabby. Good thing they gave him the knife to carry they were just, him. Yeah, so. They were trying to get rid of him because he was causing some trouble. So. <laughs> oh, Stabby. So we do have, we do have a, uh, a sad anniversary today as well. So yesterday, August 19th, was the one-year anniversary of the passing of our fellow rogue and good friend Perry DeAngelis. Uh, we wrote a blog on the Rogues Gallery today, all just sharing some of our quick thoughts about Perry and you know, what he meant to us, and still how, you know, a year later, obviously, we all still very much feel the loss of our good friend and miss his presence on this podcast. I can't even. I, I can't even listen to him. I can't. I don't, I don't want to listen to his voice. I can't. I just. You're not ready yet. Just not there. I can't, yeah. I just don't want to listen. Oh, you don't. I. I do. I occasionally call him up and listen to him. It's great. Yeah, I love it. I love listening to. I him. find it therapeutic. I'm not there yet. I wrote in the blog today. It's been a year, and like uh, the real hard pain is definitely over. And I was trying to write something positive. I couldn't write anything positive. There's nothing positive in any way. Like I could say, yeah, he's in my heart and all that stuff or whatever, but it just boils down to it's a loss and death doesn't make any sense to me and I miss him terribly and that's it. That's part of life. That's that's one of the things that's built into life and Yeah. I don't think I Perry agree. I don't think Perry would have wanted us to candy coat and fluff up his memory anyway, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, but I agree with you. I mean it's just no way around the fact that it's a net loss. It's a loss, you know, that more than anything, I really would love to have a conversation with Perry. He was so fun to talk to about anything, about the news. I mean, he would be so into the election this year. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, he'd be having Everything that's happened with day. the show over the last year, all the crazy things in the news. And I would love to have a conversation with him about that, but it can't happen. If something was crazy, if something was nonsense, if he, if he was totally against yeah. something, didn't matter who it was when it came to politics, he'd let you know about it strongly. He consumed hours of political yeah. news every day. He was really was a political junkie. Well, yeah. he'd watch TV on the can, right? Yeah. <laughs> he, oh, he he would, and he would call me from watching TV on the can to tell me about the latest breaking news that he saw on CNN or Fox or something. I mean, that, I mean he really he gave me he called me once or twice a day to give me news updates. I mean, he, he just had to talk to somebody about it. It's certainly, a big big aspect of him that's now gone in our lives. We don't we don't have that now. So. It is a bit somber. He's still very much missed. I do have a bit of pro-monkey news from today, just in honor of Perry. There was a news item about a monkey that eluded a vast dragnet in Tokyo. So somehow a wild Japanese monkey 
gotten to a uh, Tokyo train station, and they had, they say, 30 policemen surrounding the monkey, trying to catch it with a variety of snares and nets, and the monkey eluded all of them, eluded the entire police force. He got he got away, uh-huh. and they they he was spotted heading towards a park. Um, so they think he got he got away to this park. They said he was a, a Japanese monkey. I looked it up just curious as to what kind of monkey that was. I couldn't find any a Japanese oh. monkey, but it might have been a Japanese macaque. Is that the more specific name? Mm. The Japanese don't have a good history of capturing runaway animals and other creatures in their oh, cities. God. I mean, look at all those old movies. You know, of that giant lizard, fifty foot lizard crushing around their city. <laughs> Apparently they're having a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a monkey overpopulation problem. You know, we have a distinct lack of monkeys in uh, North America here. Yes. Wild yes, wild. Wild we don't have many wild monkeys in North America, that's true. Well, speaking of uh, North American monkeys, uh, we have an update <laughs> on the Bigfoot story from last week. Thank nice you. segue. Perfect. So last week <laughs> These two guys from Georgia said so they had, you know, they started BigfootTracker.com and they captured the body, they uh, collected the dead body of a Bigfoot and they saw a family of big feet living in the forest. Um, they were going to reveal it to the world and they had scientists going to doing the DNA analysis. Uh, we recorded the show prior to their big press release on Friday and we predicted, uh, we went on a limb, went out on a limb and predicted that the uh, press release was going to be a bust, that they weren't going to mm. actually give us any new data. They weren't going to show the body. Or... I remember, Jay, you were, you were saying, well, what, what's the yeah. end game here? What do these guys hope to accomplish? I mean, clearly that's a fake. So wh- 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 where's, where's it all going to lead? Well, very, very quickly, it, more quickly than I anticipated, the, uh, the hoax has been exposed. That was pretty fast. And it was a rubber costume. <laughs> the press, their press release was a bust. Obviously, they didn't have any evidence to put forward. They just said about all the evidence they were going to be presenting, but they didn't have any actual evidence. Well, the rumor, the rumor on the internet is that they think that Biscardi paid fifty grand. Yeah. So one possibility is that the end game was that these two guys were just playing Biscardi, trying to get fifty grand or whatever they could out of him. And, you know, maybe the whole press release and everything kind of got out of control, but, uh, but it could have just been all been a con against Biscardi. Well, there's, there's another possibility here, one that I would not overlook, is that Biscardi could be in on the whole thing. Yeah. Could be totally playing this, yeah. making all these claims just to continue to keep his name and his company, big, Searching for Bigfoot Incorporated, in, in the headlines. But now Biscard is claiming that the two guys vanished with uh, his money, with his fifty grand. <laughs> How long can you vanish for with fifty? Oh my grand? god! I just fell for the old rubber Bigfoot scam. I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they light a book of matches under his <laughs> under his shoe too. I mean, what the hell? You know, if the whole thing was a scam, if we go under that idea real quick, you know, they might have been gambling, saying, "Okay." How much money could we make through internet advertising and through selling things yeah. on the website and everything? So Matthew Witten and R- Ricky Dyer are the Witten. two um, Georgian guys who did this, and Matthew Witten was a, a police officer. Yeah. And he, uh, upon hearing that it was a hoax, Chief of Police Jeffrey Turner said that uh, he filed the papers to, fi- to terminate his employment. So he lost his job. I didn't say, I didn't say that they were smart <laughs> at making their plans. Well... 
But definitely, it's definitely possible. You know, they could have made a cal- – you know, this is me just having fun with this. But, you know, they might have said, hey, with in- internet advertising and sales of hats and T-shirts and all that, you know, maybe we'll make a hundred grand. We'll split it three ways and then we'll, we'll have our end game story. You know, this would be the the, the story at the end. Have seen well, someone alienated that maybe these guys were starting off as more of a of a low key hoax, and they sort of got out of control. Yeah. So and and they didn't out of control. Bigfoot to. corpse. That was that was Biscardi. That was that was him who put, who put that whole press conference. The, but it was together. not Biscardi doing do, running the press conference, right? That was I think one of the guys. It was Witten, yeah, yeah. And they made a YouTube video. It seemed all a little premeditated. I agree. I think that they they kind of knew were doing it deliberately. But yeah, it's, I think the end result of all this is that what will persist in the public consciousness is that there was another Bigfoot hoax. I was flipping around television this weekend, Friday night, Saturday night. And, and so forth just happened to have some time in front of the television do you know how many Bigfoot Sasquatch Yeti Abominable Snowman shows and documentaries and movies and it was almost like it was Bigfoot weekend some sort of celebration that I wasn't yeah. aware of that they were celebrating Bigfoot yeah they were probably just capitalizing on this news story you know rerunning stock shows they have on anything related to Bigfoot it's just mind candy for the masses well the good news about this whole thing is that at least Bacardi, Biscardi here uh, has his Halloween costume all ready to go That's for right. this year. Yeah, and, this and the next year. This I mean, this yeah. really cracked me up. Um, right, and they're even advertising this fact on uh, on the website horrordome. dot com. It's a it's a really good uh, website for for lots of different Halloween props. They've got quite a variety here, and of course on the front page it has a picture of Bigfoot. It goes, Bigfoot, is it real? Has our costume been used in elaborate nationwide hoax? I wonder if these two Georgians are going to somehow be tied to this costume shop as all part of an elaborate advertising scheme in order to sell more Bigfoot costumes. See? That's reasonable, right? It can salvage <laughs> anything from this. Well, let's move on. The, the next news item is just an interesting science news item. Uh, recently, researchers uh, led by Kevin Warwick at the University of Reading have developed a robot that is run entirely by rat neurons. So what they did was they teased out neurons from a rat fetus. So they had individual neurons. Then they plated it out on a electrode matrix of like a, an array of 60 electrodes. And you know, grew up the the neurons. The neurons actually connected to each other, formed a little network, and they made essentially a little mini biological computer out of these rat neurons, and that interfaced with the robot through this array of electrodes. And they were able to actually teach this little mini rat brain. It's not really a rat brain, but this sort of matrix of rat neurons how to some basic functionality. It was able to learn, and they were able, and they had sort of different modules that they could plug into. You know different arrays of of rat neurons that they could plug into the robot, and they said over time they kind of developed different personalities, you know some were more compliant and others were more quirky uh, so it's very extremely interesting. The whole brain computer interface is one of those technologies that Kurzweil and others talk about as being critical to the whole singularity. Uh, concept, this notion that scientific progress is going to proceed at you know an exponential rate and is going to alter not just our tools but ourselves and it 's interesting how it 's being really approached from from completely different angles, so we have some scientists trying to 
reverse engineer the brain. Others are trying to build artificially intelligent computers. There are some that are combining these approaches, that they're trying to model the brain with artificially intelligent computers or, or with um, with computer technology, and you know, meaning they're they're trying to test their models of how the brain works by simulating them in computers, and then those computers that are meant to simulate brain function actually turn out to function, you know, in in a way very similar to the brain that it's modeling. So, so far, it seems like just modeling the brain with a computer creates a, a computer, a functioning computer. Uh, program or, or hardware. Does that make sense? Uh, so the, that, that's always that, that big question. If you actually just duplicated a human brain in silicon, would it be artificially intelligent? You know, it, it, the answer so far seems to be yes, although we won't know until we take that final step. But now this is yet another approach of actually trying to build a biological computer from the ground up using neurons as a basic building block for a you know a computational matrix and you know all of these technologies may ultimately merge it's going to be a great ride well i'm glad that they're starting to work on on this particular type of uh, research because it's kind of a like a fuzzy line that needs to be drawn like some people are uncomfortable about it and i'm, I'm glad to hear that someone is finally starting to do it because it really is one of the first steps that needs to be taken in order f- for significant advancement to happen here yeah, I think they dodged a major controversial bullet by using rat neurons. Oh Imagine yeah, I do this with human neurons. Oh yeah, you know. And at this level, I think they they could have they could have done it with with human neurons. It w- I think at this level, it would have made absolutely no difference. Right. You know, it wouldn't have been any more of a human intelligence because it was with human neurons or with rat neurons. But just the idea of it would have sparked a huge controversy, in my opinion. So anyway, they, yeah, they used rat neurons. It really didn't matter. They accomplished their goal and 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 sidestep a lot of the controversy. Although the press was still using the term "Franken robot" to refer, oh God, to right? the, uh, the creature that the uh, the robot with the with the rat brain. Yeah, it's so, it's an interesting approach, and I, I like how we're kind of approaching this whole idea from so many different angles. Yeah, I, th- again, I think that the, the, these different approaches are all eventually going to merge, where we, we are interfacing biological brains with computers seamlessly. You know, and Right now, if a part of your brain isn't working, we can kind of compensate for it, but there's no way we could re- – we have no technology to replace the lost functionality. Uh, one approach to replace lost functionality would be stem cells to actually grow new neurons, and that's a very promising approach, although, you know, again, remains to be seen how far that will pan out. But another approach would be just to build a, a computer that does what we, what the lost brain tissue should be doing and and implant that in the brain. You can also, of course, think about doing that for augmentation. You know, imagine having a supercomputer interfaced with your brain. You know, you can have um, you know do calculations and have incredible vast storage of knowledge um, at your your mental fingertips, as it were. It's not too hard to imagine these applications. You know, extrapolating from these kinds of technological developments that are happening now. Yeah, I think that's the way we're going to go. Um, I think it's going to be augmentation, like, like you described, Steve, where you're where you're actually inserting parts, not not only replacing parts. I'd say your hippocampus, say you stroke, you have a yeah. stroke, and not only replacing the hippocampus, but also uh, at some point will be augmenting. And unfortunately, that's going to be a tough hurdle to cross because 
um, you know, people, a lot of people have a problem with, are we healing you or are we augmenting you? And they don't want to, they don't want to cross that line to pure augmentation. They want to just make you, you know, normal again. But at some point, we got to cross that line when it's, it'll be so easy and so beneficial to make yeah. these upgrades, if you will, that but people will try it. But that's a fuzzy line. That's a very it is. fuzzy, it's very line fuzzy between but, yeah. augmenting and treating a problem or a quote unquote disease. Here's an example from an existing technology. So there are some people who are extremely short. They're at the very you know, short end of the, of the spectrum. So they may have a specific uh, medical condition which makes them short, or they may just be short and you can call what they have, you know, whatever, they make less growth hormone or whatever. You know, is it really a disease or a disorder or is that just the way they are genetically? In any case, you could take art now artificial human growth hormone you know, when you're young to achieve more of a normal height. Is that are you are we augmenting you know short people to make them taller? Are we treating shortness as a disorder or a disease? And how short do you have to be before you're treating something rather than trying to have an edge by being taller still? Can you if someone's five six and they want to be six feet tall, is that different than somebody who's four foot two and they want to get closer to five foot two? So they're, 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 it's extremely fuzzy. Let's take cognitive ability, just raw intelligence. At what point are you treating a cognitive disorder versus just augmenting normal human intelligence? You know, that's that's an extremely fuzzy line. There'd be no way to make a sharp demarcation there. And then once some people are doing it, then everyone's going to want to do it right. in order to keep up. You know, so those are the kind of issues that get raised with this technology. This is going to be perhaps more than many or most other technologies. The ethical controversies are just waiting to happen with this type of technology when we really start you know having the ability to completely alter human intelligence you know yeah and yeah for me that the intelligence aspect of this augmentation is is uh, so much more compelling uh, than than the purely physical aspects, which are compelling themselves. It's very, it's, it's very interesting to think of what uh, we may be able to do if once we have the technology to augment ourselves physically, but mentally, wow, that's just uh, that's it's really, it's, it is, and, and but also the the ramifications and some of the things that that we could potentially accomplish if we if we allow ourselves to do that it could be pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, Bob, give us a quick report. On uh, you know, in honor of the Olympics, again we're doing another Olympics-related story. Uh, Wired magazine did a, a recent uh, article on the future of doping. Tell us about that. Yeah, very good, very good article. Um, unfortunately, I haven't been following the Olympics as much as I would have liked, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of talk about doping as as there were in previous Olympics. Regardless of that, still though, the IOC president uh, estimates that there there may be as many 40 positive doping violations this year. I'm not sure when he made that estimate, um, but most of them, and this was a surprise to me, was would be uh, most of them would be for steroids and EPO, which is a blood-boosting hormone. Steroids I found surprising. I can't believe people are even still trying that considering the the sophistication of our of our detection yeah. techniques for something as simple as steroids. Um, maybe they have new ways to administer it or I don't know, but um, still they're expecting a bunch of uh, people to be caught doing that. Um, but what really I'm really curious about though is what, what's it going to be like for the next few Olympics? What, what, what are the kind of things that you're going to be hearing about in the news this time of year, say for the 2012 or 2016 Summer Olympics? Some of them might be a couple of the following things. Uh, one of them 
which has really got me uh, intrigued is is a uh, myostatin. Myostatin is a nasty little protein that blocks muscle growth. So inhibiting this protein in mice, if you can inhibit this protein, obviously, then muscle growth is uh, is more unrestrained, and they produce some pretty wicked results with mice. Some of them have produced more than 60 percent more lean muscle mass uh, than than the than the controls. Um, they've also got a, a different technique now that have that has boosted it 116 percent for for the male mice. This isn't just oh it works in mice but not people uh, deals. So so, st- so don't even go there, Steve. Uh, I've seen yeah. I've seen pictures of uh, well I saw a picture recently of a a, a whippet a whippet yeah that yeah. that have this that they have this anomaly that you compare one to the other and they are just like the Arnold Schwarzenegger of dogs and they're like much much faster than than their normal county counterparts and i saw a picture of a kid who would naturally has a very low amount of of myostatin uh, in his system and this kid i mean i only saw like his calf but that's all i needed to see cuz this guy this kid this toddler really had bigger calves than me i mean it was amazing you could really see a huge chunk of muscle there so um but this points to a problem though because any anti-doping testing that you have would need to distinguish between natural people like this kid and those that have been artificially augmented. So that's a very important thing. But also, obviously, medical applications could be huge. I mean, just muscle-wasting diseases and the elderly immediately come to mind. What a boon it would be uh, for people like that. And hopefully, if this becomes, if this is proved to be safe and effective, I mean, how awesome would that be to quickly and easily you know, put on 10 or 20 pounds of muscle Although it's important to say that um, exercise, normal exercise, everything, the cardiovascular and the and weightlifting have uh, a lot more benefits than just um, in just a few like muscle growth and other things. There's, there's pages and pages of benefits. So uh, replacing it um, with something like a pill, I think, would be very difficult. The, another one, and we might see in a few years, is uh, EPO, uh, which is already available now. The I believe it's pronounced erythropoietin. 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 Po- poietin. Um, it's pretty. It's really big now. Um, it's a hormone that basically boosts red blood cell production. The more red blood cells you have, the more oxygen mm-hmm. your muscles get, the better you perform. Clinical trials are underway for a pill version of this uh, instead of an injection. Now, apparently, this makes it not only easier to take but harder to detect. Some people think that these so-called HIF stabilizers, um, as they're called, are already being taken by athletes, and uh, it's not known what, uh, what 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 some of the side effects might be. But people might already be taking this. That's the, just make one point here, Bob. That's a big concern with a lot of this. You know, the athletes are really early adopters oh, of this man. new medical technology because they you know they want to be. They want to get the edge over other ones before we really had the time to figure out what all the health risks of these kind of things are. For example, with myostatin. There's already evidence that that serves a useful role in muscle injury, that it also uh, is important for making muscle tendons thicker and more flexible. So if you block myostatin, tendons tend to become shorter and more brittle. You combine that with a stronger muscle, and that's a setup for injury. There may also be a tendency to have be more susceptible to muscle injury itself with myostatin. So these things are not necessarily risk-free. They, they, they have to be researched in terms of its net effects. But athletes don't want to wait for all the capital research. Oh, they no. want to early adopt before their competitors do. You could almost bet when you read articles about these huge these fitness breakthroughs, um, 
the, the scientists invariably will say, yeah, half my emails now are, are from athletes asking if they can go, if they yeah. can get this and, mm-hmm. or go on the trials and stuff. They, they just jump on this stuff. And, uh, but, so let me, this is one more here that, that, that's really interesting. Actually, I don't think it was even mentioned in the Wired magazine, but, um, you, if you remember the past few months, they, they all this talk about the exercise pill. And this actually looks like a huge, a huge breakthrough. Um, they've, these scientists have developed drugs that actually mimic some of the effects of exercise in mice. Uh, one of them, uh, increased the running time by 44%, uh, in completely sedentary mice, these like these were couch potato mice, and bam, you, you, they're on this for a little while, and they're they're like athletes. Another one, this one was even more interesting. This one, this one produced seventy seven percent greater uh, endurance and uh, the ability to run sixty six percent further when you combine this drug with exercise. So if you exercise and take this drug, and the benefits are, are much better than compared to mice that just plain old exercise. So that, that one is really interesting. And I like that because, you know, at least you're still exercising and getting the other benefits uh, of exercise. You yeah, know. The, the exercise pill um, claims were criticized a little bit by, because the researchers, you know, focused on only a couple of outcome measures like their, their, uh, speed and endurance and didn't, there's many, many physiological effects of exercise that they didn't even measure. So they're a long way from showing that this pill mimics the effects of exercise. You know, it could have just been, you know, boosting muscle activity temporarily and producing those, those research results. So that's, Way too preliminary to to really start talking about what role that would play, if any, in in promoting or maintaining you know health or activity. Um, certainly, they're a long way from showing that it's any kind of substitute for exercise. Yeah, but it is still fascinating. Steve, why do people on steroids lose muscle mass quickly once they go off the steroid? Because the you know the steroids are shifting their body metabolically into a state where they're burning fat and building muscle, and when you uh, that suppresses your your own body's ability to make those same hormones, those same steroids. And then when you go off of it, it takes your your body time to recover and start making its own hormones again. And in the meantime, you're going to shift metabolically back the other way, where you're going to burn muscle and and deposit fat. So uh, it's just a withdrawal, from, you know, from those uh, that are you know, artificially push, pushing the system in that one direction by taking exogenous steroids. It's not a healthy thing to do. It's generally not a good idea. Well, thanks, Bob. Um, I'm also going to do a special report because I was uh, asked by James Randi to help in a preliminary uh, investigation for the James Randi Million Dollar Psychic Challenge. My involvement was purely over email, but that's the stage that we were in in the the investigation. And now we've gotten a uh, response from the claimant and Randy gave me the green light to talk about this. It's a, it's an interesting story. The the claimant is a man by the name of Colin Ross. His first contact with Randy, he said that he could make his computer make a noise with the power of his mind. Part of what's interesting about the the whole process is that just trying to figure out what people are actually claiming, that's like 90% of the investigation is just trying to get the specific details about what they're actually claiming that they can do. Also just going through the process of speculating about what could be really going on. So at this stage, you know, Randy and I had a conversation about it and 
with such little information, the possibilities were hu- were huge. So, from you know, we speculated that perhaps it, that he's being duped. Maybe someone who's working with him is making the computer make a noise remotely somehow and convincing him that he can do it. You know, with his own power, or. I thought early on that, well, maybe it's a random event and it's all just pure confirmation bias and there are various methods by which people can make themselves think that there's a correlation when there isn't one. Early you know, ESP researchers fell victim to all of these. So, for example, using loose criteria for a hit. Well, it always happens when I want it to happen except when it doesn't. Or it maybe it happens a few seconds before or a few seconds afterwards. It might take a few seconds for my power to work, but it always works eventually. You know, so there's optional starting and stopping, loose criteria. So I, I figured chances are, of course, this guy could always be consciously trying to hoax Randy. But if he's not a conscious hoaxer, that's usually what we find is the case. They're just deceiving themselves by using shoddy statistical or research methods. Um, I likened it to to somebody who claimed that they could they can make elevators arrive when they want them to, <laughs> but uh, that's an yeah. awesome power. <laughs> but it it may take a few seconds to work though, you know. So the outcome is no different than for anybody else. But if you just think you could make elevators come quicker, and then you just use you know sort of subjective validation to reinforce that belief, you can convince yourself that it's you have some real power. See, I can slow down. Is that right? The elevators. Yeah, I go in and I push every button. <laughs> I can get the elevator to stop at the 13th floor. It's just a special that's a, power I that's have. A, that's a very special power. Yeah. So, obviously, we needed more information from this guy. You know, Randy asked him to give us more details about exactly what he could do. That was just too vague. And he, he gave us more details and also sent us a link to a video. He, you know, he, some lo- stupid local news you know, outlet did a, did a bit on him. And... This is this is the, what the video shows and what, what he describes that he's doing. He's saying he could make a beam of energy come out of his eye and activate his computer to have it make a noise. A beam That's of energy. Awesome. This guy's friggin' cyclops. A beam. Does it make a noise? Does it go? Well, it makes the computer make a noise. <laughs> oh, the beam. I'm wondering. I the can beam, shoot you know. lasers from my eye and my <laughs> ass. <laughs> so. We watch the video. In the video, he puts on these goggles, and he ha- and you can't see his eyes through the goggles. And on, on, in front of one eye is like aluminum foil covering the goggle. It's always tin foil, isn't it? it <laughs> yeah, comes down literally, there's tin foil. It has to be tin foil. And then there's an electrode attached to the aluminum foil. He attaches a second electrode to his right earlobe. A third electrode to his left earlobe. They all go into a, a, a box, some kind of yeah, some kind of digital converter, and then that plugs into his computer. And then he says, "Now, when I raise, I'm going to make the beam come out of my eye and activate the electrode, and I'll signal that by raising my finger." And then you know he raises his finger, and the, the computer goes bloop, bloop, bloop. You know, and then he does that a couple of times. One time it happened a couple seconds after he raised his finger, and then when he was taking the equipment off, it went off again. But it was pretty. It was a pretty good correlation to his you know raising his finger. We revised our hypotheses based upon this new evidence. I I was certainly very curious as to what all the electrodes were. I mean. He's claiming that he's shooting a beam out of his eye, but he, the bottom line was he was 
connected by electrodes to the computer. Um, and Randy had sent this email to a bunch of people like Richard Wiseman and Phil Plaid and others and who were all kind of speculating that um, you know maybe uh, the computer – he has some software running on the computer that's making this noise. Maybe it, he knows what the intervals are, and he's just you know timing the intervals, and he gets it roughly correct. Maybe it's random, and he's again doing the confirmation bias, but he knows roughly what the what the the time interval is on average, so he can he can guess pretty well just from experience. Or maybe those electrodes are triggering something. So he said, "Well, what is the software you're running, and what's that box you're attaching those electrodes to?" Um, and I speculated even at this point with all – that's all we knew. I said perhaps he's you know, using EEG signals to, to activate those electrodes. I said you, know, you can activate it not only just from your brainwave activity but also from muscle activity and even moving your eyes can activate the electrodes. So then he tells us – and I think this guy's a sincere kook is the bottom line. I I just could, by the way, he, he basically answered our questions when we pushed him for more details. He's told us that what that equipment is, it's biofeedback equipment. It's designed to measure brain waves and then to create a sound when it detects certain brain wave, brain wave frequencies. And it's a biofeedback device to try to train you or teach you how to get your brain within a certain wavelength, like to create alpha waves or whatever. You know, it's a little bit pseudoscientific in and of itself, but, you know, the whole using. EEGs for biofeedback like that, but it could be, you know, it's like semi-legitimate. But anyway, that's irrelevant to how he was using it. So I'm like, you mean to tell me this guy has an EEG attached to his head and he's using software that's designed to to detect EEG waves and make a noise? And he has a beam coming out of his eye to explain that? So... (laughs) It, I mean, it doesn't wow. work without the beam, Doctor. What's the mi- what's the disconnect here? What does this? Why does this guy think he needs to have a beam coming out of his eye when he has an EEG electrode <laughs> attached to his head? He's physically attached to the damn hey, thing. Steve, settle down a little. No, I mean, it was down. it was really amazing. I mean, what what's going on in this guy's head? So I said, all right. So I re- I refined my hypothesis further still, and I said, because you know, I'm I, I'm trained in clinical neurophysiology, so I actually know how EEGs work. So this guy actually was able to set the filter settings too. So you have to keep in mind, he was able to set the parameters for what would set off the machine. So he set it to whatever set off the machine. You know, he set the filters in such a way that he could make it go off. But I figured out that, you know, we can't see his eyes. What this guy's doing is he's just blinking his eyes. Mm. Now, what he may not have known is that the uh, your eye is a dipole. Your your retina is negative and your cornea is positive. Hmm. So it it's like a little dipole. And when you close your eyes, uh, they ne- they normally will turn up inside your head. That's called the Bell's phenomenon. You could actually see it if someone has facial weakness, like a Bell's palsy. You could see their eye roll up. But every, it happens it, it, to everybody when you close your eyes. So that little dipole flips up when you close your eye and then flips back down when you open your eye. So if you blink your eyes, it sort of flips up and down. And there's an eye-opening artifact that's a very big artifact on EEG. It's a basically a big EEG wave. And there's an eye-closing artifact, and you can see them very, cl- very clearly on an EEG. And he had an electrode in front of his eye. You know, I, th- I think the tinfoil, which he said was necessary to keep out extraneous, you know, EM energy, I think it was also acting like a little bit of a dish to amplify the signals from his eye. But even without that, I mean, the ear electrodes would pick it up too. I mean, that's, they're 
close enough where they could pick up eye-opening artifact, especially depending on the sensitivity he had the whole thing set to. So he was just opening his eye and setting off the machine. That's so why, the go- why the goggles, though? Well, because he thinks that he has an energy beam coming out of his eye. and he oh, needed he's protecting the- people from, like, dying from this energy beam? Well, it's something? not that strong, but, I mean, he needed to keep out other energy so that the eye beam can be detected. So this guy had himself convinced that he was shooting a beam of energy out of his eye when it was just a known EEG effect of just the eye rolling back up when you close your eyes. See, I knew the tinfoil was a giveaway <laughs> as far as uh, <laughs> what we were dealing with. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is partly why. I mean, I had fun doing this whole thing. It was kind of like a little, you know, it was always, things are always mini mysteries. And we definitely shut this guy down, you know, pretty quick. So how'd you let him down, Steve? So, well, Randy was communicating directly with him. I was just communicating mm-hmm. with Randy. So I told Randy this. I said, listen, this is obviously an eye-opening artifact. I mean, that's all the pieces are there. It's clearly what's happening. So Randy sent this to the guy. And now just, I guess, just yesterday... Colin Ross sent his latest reply to, to Randy. He writes, Dear James Randy, after doing further testing, I have satisfied myself concerning two points. One, there is definitely an EM beam emerging from the eyes that has higher amplitude and distinct electrophysiologic properties compared to the field emerging through the forehead. Um. And, and two, the tone in my neurofeedback system is being triggered by eye blink artifact, not by the EEG signal. Aren't those two things like counterintuitive? I mean, yeah, aren't they like yeah, aren't, <laughs> Isn't one redundant if you accept two? If you accept that all of the evidence <laughs> you were putting forward for the eye beam is the is the eye blink? So he basically tested out my idea and figured, oh my god, it is happening when I blink my eyes. He's like, uh, and he says, I need I need to do more work on modifying my system to eliminate movement artifact before I can do the preliminary test. This will most likely require a higher impedance electrode and may take a few weeks or a few months. I will get back to you in that time frame. My goal is to set up a system where artifact can be ruled out to our joint satisfaction. Thanks. So Randy's response to that, to us, not to him, was, all right, we're never going to see this guy again. You know, once he gets to the, oh, let me fix my system and I'll be back yeah. in a few months, he never hears from people again. That's always okay. their, their graceful exit from the testing procedure. The, let, me, let me scrape together a few bucks and I'll fix this thing up in a second. Thank <laughs> you. So tweak I've, Gizmatron. I've come to a conclusion, A and not A. <laughs> not A. It's A, but not because of A. A, my original claim is still true, but B, uh, you were right, and it was all an artifact. Okay. But I need to do some more work on modifying my system. So I think what this okay, guy was Colin, doing thanks. was that he had himself convinced that he was building up this energy inside his head, then yeah. he was shooting it out his eyes, but he had to, like, he would open his eyes at the moment the energy was shooting out, but that was creating the signal. The opening of wow. the eyes was creating the signal that was setting off his detection equipment, you know, his EEG biofeedback equipment. Wow. So anyway, obviously it's silly, but it does illustrate why the scientific method is what it is why we have things like peer review you know it's people who have an assortment of expertise like for me i knew instantly this was eye-opening artifact because i've studied eegs you know that this guy couldn't figure it out and that he you know leapt to this new phenomenon of shooting em beams out of his eyes because he didn't know that there was eye-opening artifact you know but still but still all right fine it's not. It shouldn't be immediately obvious to, to anyone, but maybe a neurologist or someone who's used this equipment. But you would think he'd throw a few tests in there to to disprove his hypothesis, like aim at a barrier, put a barrier up, so that there's no way your beam can bore through it. 
to get to the detector and it would still go off and then you'd have to think, well, wait a second, maybe it's not a beam coming out of my eye, maybe it's something else. You know, wouldn't that be a normal test that you might want to consider doing just to rule it out, to somehow disprove it? You don't have to be an an expert in EEGs to rule that out. You're right. What you're you're doing is just taking a what any scientist would do, they would try to control as many variables, they would try to disprove their hypothesis by doing exactly what you're saying. So if my hypothesis is true, if I'm shooting a beam out of my eye, then let me do this the same thing except not try to shoot a beam out of my eye and see if I still get the signal. Let me do everything that I'm doing, opening and closing my eyes and electrodes hooked up the same way. Or your test is also another one. If this is a beam, let me try to block the beam and see if that stops the signal. Whatever, you think of all different ways you can test that hypothesis to try to prove it wrong. And only if it survives all of those tests would you then, you know, have the press release, go on the news channel and submit, you know, for the million dollar psychic challenge, you know. But uh, he's kind of skipped over those, those steps, those steps that we call legitimate science. Well, let's go on with our interview. We are sitting here now with Adam Savage of the Mythbusters. Adam, welcome back to the, to the Skeptics Guide. Thank you very much. Uh, we had the pleasure of interviewing you at last year's TAM, and we were very excited to hear that you were going to be here again, and uh, we have another opportunity to sit and talk with you. Um, so how are you enjoying the conference so far? Yeah, very much. And this is absolutely my kind of crowd. Um, <laughs> it's good to hear. Cool. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Uh, everybody is incredibly friendly and generous, um, and it's, you know, it's a mixed blessing sometimes being famous and having people come up to you all the time, but uh, it's not at a place like this. Mm-hmm. At a place like this, making myself available and just keep uh, continuing to foment exactly what people say they like about the show, which is the accessibility and how much they identify with Jamie and I. Uh, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to do that. And people have been coming up to me. This is my third TAM, and people are coming up to me this year and saying that you know, meeting me last year was really great and they've been talking about it all year and they came back to meet me again and it's, that's thrilling. That's really, that's fantastic. Awesome. You find you get good feedback for just your show from meeting, meeting your fans at places like this? Yeah, you know, it's funny. There's, of course we get a lot of emails from people telling us that we screwed things up. Mm-hmm. Um, really, and, we never get those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never. Um, and I am absolutely positive that... Uh, that if I took a, a informal survey when I got up on stage, that probably half of the audience here at TAM has at one point or another yelled at me or Jamie at the television for <laughs> being freaking idiots. Um, and yet, all of that goes out the window when they come up and say hello. They are There's nothing but goodwill because I think they see the real intellectual honesty mm-hmm. in even our screw-ups. That we're never trying to put anything over and there's never going to be a, a man versus wild moment with us which is you know Discovery was right to say that that was a problem with marketing more than the show the show is just edited without the transparency that people have come to expect from quote reality reality Mm -hmm. television Mm -hmm. Um, and that kind of transparency which we work really rigorously to bring to the show I think um, surpasses any times when people think oh my god I can't believe they don't realize that tracer rounds aren't what they're using (laughs) do you find that hard that transparency because the the process is so artificial in that you're filming things probably out of sequence sometimes and splicing it all together and if the final product is such a small piece of all the filming that you do I'm assuming that's just the way it's usually done that how, how do you keep that 
transparent when the process is so is so artificial? One, that's a great question. Uh, one of the ways we do that is that Jamie and I are absolutely a key part of how every story gets told. Mm-hmm. There's nothing written down for us. There's nothing wrote. We do the intros and outros to the shows in what's called the blueprint room. We do that last, usually at the end of every episode. And those are the links that we, you know, link between sequences. We don't know what those sequences will be until we try things. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another way we maintain the transparency. Yeah. We, we start with a rough shooting script, uh, how we think the experiment's going to go, uh, but it rarely goes the way we think mm-hmm. it's going to go. And we are constantly changing parameters based on, wow, I didn't realize that was going to be so difficult. Now we're going to need an extra day on location, or now we're going to need a different location. And that means that even though we might shoot some things out of order, um, usually it's painfully obvious demonstrations mm-hmm. that will shoot out right, of order. Right. The fact is, is we're involved in the whole process, yeah. so there is really a process. There really is a discovery happening on that day that we're firing things into ballistics gel or you know mm-hmm. setting up our cannon. Isn't so it sure. funny though? You have to actually say that because so much of what we digest is fake, completely fake. I mean, even all the real they call them reality TV right. shows. You know, really, like, what you do is an actual reality TV show. Uh, you know, again, I'd say that it's a fuzzy line. Uh, we, we repeat, we, we do several takes of everything yep. for different camera angles. Um, for uh, key discussions, we'll shoot a wide and cut in for inserts and do that. Jamie and I have, uh, for better or worse, Jamie specifically, I mean, I have five years of acting training, but Jamie's gotten very good at um, appearing much more natural and much more genuine on camera, mm-hmm. um, much to his chagrin. <laughs> um, <laughs> And see, the other thing is, is that because we're so involved in the process, we really know that we're telling a story. And there's a reality to the story that doesn't necessarily mean that it's cameras falling around getting eight hours of footage per camera per day. Uh, actually, our shooting ratio has gone way down because we've gotten much more efficient at telling the story than we used to be. It used to be they would have 40 hours of footage to cut 40 minutes. Wow, uh, wow. Now it's more like 20, 25 hours of footage. Oh, that's great. Um, but, you know, we are in that's, that story is a real story. And even though we might know how certain experiments are going to turn out, it's still a story we're totally interested in. Yeah. It's still something when we, when we correctly, we were trying to demonstrate uh, electricity's transfer through water recently. And in this classic style, Jamie was like, well, I'll just get a water pistol and we'll put some electricity behind it and we'll measure when it gets to, you know, we'll put an oscilloscope on the ground and measure when it gets there. And, of course, there's so much turbulence in the water, the signal is completely... It's impossible both to get a, a, a solid signal and because Jamie's holding this big water pistol, the distance <laughs> is varying greatly. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, I say this at the beginning, like, I don't think this experiment's going to work very well because of all these variables. And Jamie's like, well, I just want to try it. And he'll go and do it. <laughs> and then after watching him flail for three hours, which is exactly what happened, I said... Told you so. Uh, no, I didn't. I said, you know what, let's, okay. But also realizing, actually, that this was a terrific example of how to boil, how to boil out uh, uh, variables. Mm-hmm. Because then I said, well, look, what's our stream? Would you agree with me it's about 3 sixteenths? Okay, let's get some 3 sixteenths clear ID tubing. Let's stick it in the ballistics gelatin at the source, and let's put electrodes in, first two inches away, then mm. one foot, then two feet, then three feet. And then we did that, and the ballistics gelatin was giving us some funny reason, readings, so we went out and got a leg of lamb, jammed it in a leg of lamb, got much... <laughs> and all of a sudden, after like four separate attempts at this experiment, mm-hmm. we had boiled away enough parameters to get a set of readings which actually were linear in their, in their deterioration, yeah. yep. which is... That's what we were looking for. I right. just love the phrase, so we went out and got a leg of lamb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's how you know you've 
got a, a great show on your hands, I think. <laughs> so have you ever had a total failure of a show? Like, I wouldn't know how to describe it, but no, anything? Nothing usable, nothing... Yeah. That's a good question. Um, we have had stuff where... We've had stuff where locations kicked our ass. Uh, train suction, the yeah. idea of... <laughs> it's very hard to yeah. phrase this. <laughs> if you're standing on a train platform and the mm-hmm. train goes by, it'll suck you off. It'll do what? I'm sorry. <laughs> and it was very difficult to find anybody with a bona fide train platform that would let us use it with a real train. Yeah. Let us try this. Um, uh, that took actually a year and a half to achieve. As far as an experiment where things just went really south, you know, I know there's probably been something where we filmed a bunch of stuff and it just never quite gelled into something and we had to abandon it. But it's usually, it's usually within the first day of experimentation we realized that this actually isn't a story. Yep. And I don't think it's happened more than once or twice. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you show the process and not just the end result and pretend like that's what we were going for all along. But you mm. kind of show that, yeah, this kind of evolved over time. Well, and actually, it's the, it's the, thing, that, um, it's the thing that's most satisfying is you know, we're not going to stand by our results. Mm-hmm. You know, we have data sets of one and less than one sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and there's nobody that's emailed us and thanked us for the groundbreaking work and urban yeah. legend research we've been doing. Yeah, right. But working scientists from every organization you can imagine have written to us and said, you're showing the scientific method for what it is, which is messy and confusing yeah. Yeah, and right. deeply exactly creative. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's absolutely. Right. And uh, yeah. that's an interesting point uh, that I wanted to hit. We've been interviewing a lot of bloggers and podcasters, and a recurring theme has been interaction with the audience. And I think you guys do a, you seem to do a really great job of it. How much do you think that your interaction with your audience has uh, contributed to the show's success? Well, it works on so many levels. Uh, it works on a level of the fact that for some reason, both Jamie and I, through two totally different paths, don't mind being ourselves on camera. Yeah. But I, for one, when I'm doing a piece to camera, I very specifically think about my toughest audience, which is my wife. And I'll tell you, you know, mm-hmm. I get home at the end of the day and she really doesn't want to hear mm-hmm. about the great time I had shooting things at the shooting <laughs> yeah. every single day. But if I really did have a particularly excellent experience with solving some problem, that's who I think about when I'm doing a piece to camera because she's the toughest audience and what she's interested in is not what I was doing, not even the parameters of what I was doing. She's interested in how thrilled I was by doing it. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so that interaction I'm having with the camera, which is very specifically when I'm trying to uh, achieve some kind of real transparency to my thought process and my emotional process about doing this show, uh, I recognize as key to people's involvement in what we're doing. Yeah. It makes them realize that you know, they're not just watching someone tell them how things are supposed to turn out. Because, I mean, I've seen... But when we did the elevator, should you jump up just before mm-hmm. the elevator falls? Mm-hmm. Um, I had seen four or five different science shows attempting to show why it wouldn't help, including, uh, including Bill Nye. I was about to say I yeah. saw it on Bill Nye and ages ago. Yeah. I love Bill Nye, but honestly, I, I didn't understand what was going on from watching his demonstration. Didn't he use like an egg? Yeah, he used the, an egg. And yeah. again, he didn't have a high-speed camera to show that the egg was jumping up right. at the last second. It just and sort it of was, like flicked and yolk and yeah, right, that's your head. Yeah. Precisely. <laughs> Um, and, you know, for us, getting a 10-story crack hotel <laughs> yeah, turned out to be the magic bullet. Nice. Uh, and then, you know, so then you've got that interaction for you with the camera seems to result in uh, your audience wanting to uh, email you and you've got message boards and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and haven't you been picking up more ideas for the show from your fans? It's the, the, the stuff we get personally in Jamie's and my email and stuff that's posted to the discovery boards has always been a really key part. More than ever before, Jamie and I are, are real drivers in the material that we shoot. 
there is really a quartet of, of brain trust at the center of Mythbusters. And it's Jamie and I, Dan Tapster, our executive producer in Australia, and Alice Dallow, our director, producer on the ground in San Francisco. And between the four of us, we're the ones that decide exactly what to do. Dan uh, has people monitor the discovery boards. I don't read the discovery fan boards. I don't read the slash dot comments. I don't read the Reddit comments. Um, they've actually really screwed me up from time to time. Really? Uh, they're so vitriolic. It's, yeah. mm. it's, it's like, you know, you've ever had your day ruined by just someone next to you in a car, not even railing at you, but having road rage. Like, it's so oh, disturbing yeah. to yeah. see someone so upset. Yeah. Mm. And you read those things, and people get... And you know that it's like some 15-year-old kid. <laughs> <laughs> the, the internet is filled with 15-year-old kids. Yeah. And I, I liken them all to people in their cars. They're at the computer, which is just like being in your car, your armored car, so you can give the finger to anybody you want, and there's no repercussions because yeah. you're going to be gone. Computer yeah, rage. Yeah. Right. Computer rage, that's right. Keyboard cowboys, I call yeah. them. Yeah. 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 I actually got I an email I, back because I love responding and just demolishing them. And then I got an email back <laughs> once like, oh, oh, I thought this was just going to evaporate in the ether when I send, hit the send button on my email no there's a person at the other end of the email yeah. you know yeah. but you're right so you're cocooned in your little world so you think that nothing's it's not reality out there that you're you know emailing to so every now and then i get some you know from last the last year's tam on the wikipedia on my wikipedia page which by the way i think wikipedia needs an edit for the subject of the wikipedia page it needs a special edit tag like i should be able to go onto my wikipedia page mm-hmm. and correct factual errors and then that edit should have my tag on it, right? Mm-hmm. Like a colored asterisk right. that says the subject of this oh. yes, Wikipedia yes. page has made this yeah, alteration. Yeah, that's, that's a good yeah. idea. Because uh, on Wikipedia, oh. they think my middle name is John, which it isn't. What's that's your middle name? Whitney. Whitney. <laughs> Whitney. Um, it's, it's, a great it's a family name. It's a family name. It it's actually my father's it's first be. name. Oh. Um, I'd stick with John. At any rate, every, <laughs> at any rate, every now and then I do end up responding to some email that I shouldn't. Yeah. Um, and I got I got one a couple of months ago where some guy said, "You guys really." And it's, uh, there's always this kind of really lazy arrogance. You guys are you guys make me laugh. Sometimes the sip is pretty smart, but I could prove evolu- I could prove that evolution is bunk and creationism uh-huh. oh, in no. five minutes with you. Mm-hmm. Right, and I had just gotten home. I was a little tipsy, <laughs> and oh, I, I, I wrote back. I just wrote back. Yeah, I drunk dialed. I was like, "How nice for you, send." Yeah. <laughs> have you ever Have you ever typed out a whole email and then before you hit send, uh, delete? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, I I did have a military guy write to me and was quite insulting about something he said. Oh no, it was the tracer rounds thing where he said, "You guys are freaking idiots for the tracer rounds you used." And I and I wrote back and said, "Actually, you know when I when." Our experts, our ballistics experts for the state police of California and the FBI, I'm going to trust the material they bring to us. I recognize that we may not have had a complete sample, but I'm going to trust the material mm-hmm. that they bring to us. And in my, where I come from, we start our email with a salutation and we <laughs> sign it with our fucking name. <laughs> and, he, and that was, again, I, was, I had two drinks in me and I was pissed off. And yeah. he ended up writing back a fantastic letter saying, I am very sorry for my rudeness. Wow. And he said, here's the, here's the information you didn't have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it was fantastic. But why wouldn't they that. start like that and the yeah. answer is yeah. th- and I think it just has to do with personal ego everybody yeah. likes to oh that guy's on TV he's famous or that guy's on the or, radio or, or they wanted to get his attention first mm. right I don't think because, it's that conscious I just yeah, think, I I think the, the yeah, social think, things are gone yeah. right there's no social yeah. structure there it's just it's email punctuation's gone yeah. <laughs> capitalization and so yet despite all that vitriol you know you still come out to things like Tam I mean I, rem- I was just saying I remember meeting you at Tam 4 
and I got to ride in the limo with you, which was like I was so thrilled How nice beyond you. belief. <laughs> but you're, you know, you're enthusiastic. You guys were wiped out. You had been traveling all day, but you were so like, this is the coolest thing ever. I'm coming back every year. And I think that, like, we feel that, you know, that love. And uh, it's just so fantastic that you... Honestly, remember that my job on a day-to-day basis is me, Jamie, camera, sound, and our producer, director. Um, It's five of us. It's dirty. It's hard work. uh, It's confusing. And it's very blue-collar. I go home filthy and tired. Um, And yet... What we do ends up being seen in 140 countries in nine languages, 120 wow. hours of programming we've produced so far. And do you watch yourself in German just to see what you sound like in German? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I haven't seen myself in German. <laughs> Actually, I was in Montreal nine. two weeks ago. Uh, I was there during the Grand Prix, and this uh, guy came up to me in a restaurant, so random, and he said in broken English with his friend as a translator, I do your voice for the oh, Spanish yeah. language. Oh, my God. Cool. And the fact is, is he, that's, his voice is everything from Mexico to the southern tip of South America and Spain. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fantastic. all across the world, this wow. guy's voice. And he's very... I know because he ended up... We did a Listerine commercial in Spanish. <laughs> he did. Yeah. yeah, and this guy, they hired this guy to do my voice and his partner to do Jamie's voice. And it was very, they were very excited to get the actor. Does he voice. have like a really high squeaky voice? <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like Marcelo Mastroni. Thanks. <laughs> sexy Latin voice. Um, so to me, the idea that um, very specifically people who are coming to a conference about critical thinking are thrilled about the show that we're doing, mm-hmm. that these stories that we work hard to tell and you know we take real pride in trying to tell truthfully uh, have this kind of effect is, like I said, I don't sense anything out in the world but real goodwill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how long do you see the show going on and do you see like the format changing in any way or... Well, the format's evolved over the years. Um, we've, we've gone into lots of different areas, from product testing to idioms. Uh, I mean, idiomatic phrases have provided hours of stuff. Um, we've delved, as the budget's gotten bigger, a lot more into movie myths and television myths, MacGyver, James Bond, Pirates mm-hmm. of the Caribbean. Jaws. Jaws. Awesome. And you know we're doing Shark Week again this year. Are you? Yeah, we were down in the Bahamas in March, and uh, three hours of shark programming uh, coming up in late July. Oh, boy. Oh, can't wait. Wow. Yeah. What was the Pirates of the Caribbean stuff? Um, we did uh, we did several pirate specials. Pirate specials turned out to be really popular. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. yeah go um, figure, pirates. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they're very really popular. I really, <laughs> I really tried to do pirates versus ninjas. I really <laughs> yeah. tried to see oh, a way to narratively do it that wasn't absolutely stupid, and I could not come up with one. Well, no, you need to do a whole show. Who would win in a fight? Pirate versus ninjas, shark versus bear. You know, exactly, exactly. Um, but uh, we did. Uh, I mean, it's. Absolutely ridiculous, but people loved it. We did the, could you really turn a rowboat upside down and walk on the bottom with it while like breathing from it? Oh, yeah. Which actually turned out to be quite a dangerous and difficult thing to do because in order to have a boat full of air underwater, you've got to put a shitload of weight on oh, it. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's hard. And to do that in a safe fashion when you can't actually speak to each other. And this was actually a really lovely moment. I mean, Jamie and I, like, a, you know, like we've always said, it's really true. We're not friends. We don't hang out. Uh, we don't even particularly like each other, but we have a partnership based on a deep amount of trust and respect. And we often will, as in talking, just finish each, finish each other's sentences. Uh, in fact, a lot of times we'll be having a conversation and they'll say, could you please do that conversation again with pronouns this time? Because <laughs> I didn't get anything. And we were down under the water, and we've got this boat, and it's moving in very unpredictable ways, and we're trying to make it predictable, and we're on sawhorses we built at the bottom of a pool we can't mark with, like, 
1,200 pounds of weight on it and trying to fill it with air. And, you know, there's four other crew members underwater, including us. And Jamie and I, I mean, they're all trusting us to keep them safe. And Jamie and I are doing, you know, this, we're making they, up a sign language. The and podcast there's absolutely can't see yeah. Yo, hand signals, hand gestures. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're like in each role, like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. We all nodded our heads. Yes. <laughs> you can subtitle it. Yeah, great. There you go. Um, so we're doing all these hand signals to each other. And there's not, they're not causing any more delay than talking to us underwater. Just because we, in the, in the key moments, really do think exactly alike about how things are working and how they ought to work. Yeah. So I see the show. I don't see any end to this. I mean, uh, you, obviously there will be some kind of natural, natural. Well, one day you're going to die. That's why you're. Yeah. Hopefully it's not on the show. How long, how long is your current contract for? Uh, Discovery has me uh, and Jamie out until the next season. We're just started shooting uh, series six. They have us until the end of series seven, which carries us to filming till the end of 2010. Which means Great. show will be airing until the beginning of 2011, wow. and then uh, honestly, we we've got enough material to carry us out through then, and we're always about 60 or 70 minutes ahead of the curve. There's entire hour-long special. I've got three or four entire hour-long specials that uh, you know still to do. High fi- high fidelity. Still got to do uh, 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 vinyl versus CD. Yep. <laughs> right. Yeah. Still got to do speaker cable versus coat hanger. Oh, yeah. ah. Uh, And, you know, last year, I think it was, you were working on um, quantifying the differences between things like an ass load and a shit load. Oh, yes. How's that going? My taxonomy of nonsense words for large (laughs) and small numbers. Uh, It's still still in the works. Uh, I met a lovely man here, a friend of Jamie and Swiss's, Chip Denham. He's a statistician. He's Mm -hmm. wonderful. He actually consulted us consulted with us very recently because uh, next week when I get back we're going to be doing beer goggles oh god (laughs) beer goggles (laughs) beer goggles women get more attractive the more you drink or men because Carrie and Jamie and I will all be getting drunk and reviewing photos and in terms of uh, quantifying a statistical uh, difference between the photos that we monitor when we're sober Mm -hmm. and when we're drunk it took a little figuring to get the methodology right yep. uh, and in the end Chip helped out and confirmed that the way we were thinking about it was actually right uh, so what I'd still like to do is uh, there's plans for an Adam and Jamie website mm-hmm. in the works um, actually we have some fairly big plans that I, I can't mention but uh, oh, one of them is a, among friends. We can <laughs> yeah, yeah. one us. of them is a website and on that website I definitely would like to do the, the, uh, the survey in a digital form kind of the way Flickr does choose the best image they give you two images you yeah. choose the best one give you two words from a category, choose what you think is the biggest. Uh, it's a self-selected group, to be sure, but uh, you know, after four or five thousand, I think I, after four or five thousand entries, I figure I could actually publish a, a pretty reasonable white paper. Well, you know, that's how Richard Wiseman did the World's Funniest Joke survey, so you should talk to him. He'd probably help you out. Oh, okay. Excellent. Excellent. So you don't have your eyes on the next project. You're content just doing what you're doing and expanding the, the current... Not at all. I always have my eyes on the next project. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I as Don't a free- badger the man as a freelancer for ten years, fifteen years before I did MythBusters. I'm always wondering what's next. I'm always you're always thinking, you know, do I stay in this or do I? I mean, at one point, I even looked into being a, a magic illusion designer. Mm-hmm. And except I realized I'd probably have to move to LA or Vegas to do it. Yeah. And I wasn't so I kept on special effects. But so I'm thinking all sorts of different things. Uh, I have I have several show ideas. Uh, I have there's a lot of consulting that I'd like to be doing uh, for other shows. There's a lot of 
networks out there that want to that want to figure out what the formula behind MythBusters' success is, and I think I actually know what that formula is, and I'd like to help other people make programs that are similar in terms of their honesty, their intellectual honesty, yeah. and their interest level. But then you should talk to Ryan Johnson, the producer of the Skeptologist. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I give a lot of time yeah. to people who've got questions about that kind of stuff. I also I look forward to teaching honestly. I really I taught uh, advanced model making at the Academy of Art College in San Francisco. Uh, which was bo- basically walking around, putting out fires and giving kids better solutions. <laughs> Literally and it was so out. much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I really look forward to teaching on a university level, uh, advanced problem solving 101. Uh, Jamie, Jamie wants to teach a course called Not Fucking Around 101, <laughs> which is basically just like, get, it, get simpler, make it simpler, make it even simpler than that, get even simpler than that. <laughs> Breaking things down to there. Right. I have a random question. Yeah. Do you like <laughs> South Park? Um, I do like South Park. I, I don't get an, I don't watch a lot of television regularly. Um, my wife and I make time, I think, three times per season to catch up with Lost. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We'll have marathons. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the shows I watch are things like The Closer, which I love. Strangely, and I, it, this is going to be really weird, and everyone listening to this is going to go, <gasps> and clutch their pearls. Yeah. But I love Medium. And I'll tell, you why uh-huh. I love, I'll tell you why I love Medium. I love Medium for their home life. I don't care much for the plots, and I find the plots actually disgusting and kind of disturbing. But I don't know another show that shows just a sweetly loving married couple with kids in a better light. It's mm-hmm. chaotic and confusing and messy, and I, I really love watching their marriage go. Yeah, you see, I can't get, by, get past the title. Yeah, <laughs> That's I where I lose. No, I, abs- I, fully, yeah, full, I totally realize that this, there's no reason you should get past the title. <laughs> I need to put this on Twitter right now. Newsflash. <laughs> uh, New Ad is having loves medium. <laughs> Uh, I really, I really dig Lost. Um, yeah, I love it. Too. It's fun. It's a definitely fun. a fun show. It sucks you in. Yeah. Have yeah. you been parodied yet on any uh, like Simpsons or anything? Uh, we anything? were parodied on. We were parodied on the MTV show on some, no Comedy Central. Some program on Comedy Central parodied Jamie and I uh, investigating whether masturbation makes you go blind. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, it all in claymation. <laughs> hey, Steve, you don't have to ask that question. Every man on earth knows the answer is no. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Unless you're the blind the guys, aren't you sure? <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> <laughs> Through a sample size of N, N equaling the entire male population of the world. <laughs> what is the sample size of all? Yeah. Um, and uh, I know that there, we've been parodied in many different countries on different, like in South America, there is actually a recurring Mythbusters parody of these two guys that don't look anything like us. They do some very funny stuff. Yeah. The one I saw was they had a guy from the audience sit in a chair and they covered him with a blanket and then they buried a samurai sword in his head. It was clear that all they'd done is as they were putting the blanket on, they just put a watermelon on top of his head, <laughs> you know, on a helmet and they just, yeah, right through it. I will tell you uh, that uh, Mythbusters has been on kind of a hiatus on the network for the last few months. They are planning a big push of three months' worth of all-new episodes starting in August, right after the three hours of Shark Week, Mythbusters Shark Week 08 airs. Excellent. Cool. And that Looking starts, that. I think it kicks off in the beginning of August with the NASA moon landing special. Oh, oh great. Yeah. Um, there's a ton of really great <laughs> stuff that there. That sounds really good. Well, Adam, this is a pleasure as always. We Thank really appreciate you so sitting with us. Pleasure Thanks for me, again. too. I'll Thanks, Adam. T- talk to you guys next year. All right. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We do have a theme this week. The theme uh this week is material science. All about new materials. Ready? Number one. 
By making an alloy of iron, silicon, and manganese, researchers have created a practical superconductor at temperatures just under zero degrees Celsius, just short of the holy grail of a quote-unquote room-temperature superconductor. Item number two, a new study shows that lining endotracheal tubes used for patients on a ventilator with silver reduces the incidence of pneumonia by 36%. And item number three, scientists have developed a thin film that can radically change its absorption or emittance of light and heat, which can be used to insulate so-called microsatellites. Evan, go first. Okay, an alloy of iron, silicon, and manganese practical superconductor at temperatures just under zero degrees Celsius. That sounds incredibly plausible, so I'm suspect. Next, um, lining the endotracheal tubes used for patients on a ventilator with silver reduces incidence of pneumonia by 36%. So who uh, wonder why? I wonder why they would think to maybe even uh, use silver. Um, The last one thin film radically changing the absorption or emittance of light and heat which can be used to insulate so-called microsatellites i don't know what is you know i can infer what a microsatellite is i know nothing of it so a microsatellite a satellite less than 50 pounds ah thank you they all sound plausible i think number two sounds the least plausible but i'm not sure that that's that's the fiction so i'll go with my gut which tells me this the room temperature superconductor with that new alloy, I think that one's fiction. I think it's a curveball. Okay, Jay? Yeah, I'm going to agree with Evan on that, definitely. That's the one of the three that I'm pretty sure I would have heard of, and I don't think we're there yet. Okay. Bob? The uh, Number two, the lining the endotracheal tubes with the, with silver. Sound, I don't know, that sounds right to me. That sounds... I'm believing that one. Something about, I don't know, something about the silver maybe uh, helping reduce um, the potential for bacterial or viral infections getting to the lung. I don't know. That just sounds right. Number three also sounds right about, I know they've been trying for a while to to make these microsatellites feasible, and and I, and there was some sort of uh, microsatellite breakthrough recently, and I, and I think that's why... Um, they're talking about it now is because they had that they had this breakthrough in the uh, in the thin film. Uh, number one, the uh, I mean, a, a superconductor at just below zero, which is what kind of a leap in what kind of a leap is that? A hundred and what? One hundred and seventy degree jump. The latest was you know around um, liquid nitrogen temperatures, so that's quite a leap. And I, yet again, I have to say, I would have heard of it. Because that's such a that's such a huge huge advance. I'm gonna have to say that that one is fiction. Okay, so you're all in agreement. So let's take these in reverse order uh, this week. Scientists have developed a thin film that can radically change its absorption of and emittance of light and heat, which can be used to insulate so-called microsatellites, and that is science. Uh, this is a cool <laughs> breakthrough. What they developed is a uh, this this material. It's like a sandwich of materials, and it's extremely thin. Uh, with the application of electrical currents, they can basically change its color in the visible as well as UV cool. and infrared spectrum. So that it could either, if it were in space, if it were, if it were in sunlight, it could reflect all the sunlight away so that it wouldn't heat up. And if it in, if it's in shadow, it could absorb what little you know radiation it does get, and then also would insulate it from loss of heat. So 
the uh, it's essentially just the ability to radically change its color, its its light emittance, that makes it potentially gives it uh, could be used for these very very tiny satellites, which have a lot of you know the big problem is that they can't miniaturize the heating and cooling temperature regulation for these satellites. So this would be a way to do that. It's also very tough. So it would the coating would be um, effective at keeping out micrometeoroids. They tested the material, uh, they say, by just shooting stuff at it, <laughs> you know, shooting, <laughs> you know, sharp, hard stuff at high velocity at it to sort of simulate the micrometeoroids. Yeah, EM beams, all kinds of stuff. Right, and the goal of all this is to reduce the cost of getting pounds into space. Right, if you could send up really tiny. Satellites, so microsatellites are less than fifty pounds, and they also have nanosatellites, which are less than ten pounds. Whoa, nanosatellites, <laughs> Bob! Mm, yeah, nanosatellites. That? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, let's go on to the next item. A new study shows that lining endotracheal tubes used for patients on a ventilator with silver reduces the incidence of pneumonia by thirty-six percent, and that one is also science. Woo. And yeah, the idea is actually not that much of a stretch. I mean, it's known that silver has um, uh, antimicrobial properties. It actually, you know, kills bacteria and other microbes and prevents them from adhering to the tube itself. So, uh, what they did this is a study published recently in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and they used um, silver-coated endotracheal tubes and found that the incidence of ventilator-acquired pneumonia was reduced from 7.5% to 4.8%. That's significant. You know, that would you know, re- significantly reduce um, morbidity and mortali- mortality, hospital stays. So it's a nice little advance. Which means that all of you guys are right, that number one, by making an alloy of iron, silicon, and manganese, researchers have created a practical superconductor at temperatures just under zero degrees Celsius. Just negative. The holy grail of a room temperature superconductor is fiction. Sounds like there's a and again, I, again, I always in I had to think, you know, how high to go with the temperature to make it seem be a clue. Bobby obviously honed in on that. That certainly is would be a dramatic jump, and you know, unless it was something that was just in the news today, you probably would have heard about it. You know, I had to make it fair without being ridiculous. You should have made it like minus ninety degrees. Well, yeah, of course. It, you know, once I know <laughs> what the response is, I, I would. You know, tweak it later. You know, <laughs> hindsight's twenty twenty. But this is based on a new, a, a real news story, uh, which is actually pretty cool in its own right because scientists did figure out how to make an alloy of silicon, iron, and manganese. All very, very common. Nothing uh, uncommon about any of these elements. Obviously, iron. You know, silicon. Even manganese, which is just another metal, is very, very common. So, iron is a ferromagnetic uh, material. And silicon is a semiconductor, and these two materials are the backbone of our industry and technology uh, for those two properties. And what they realize is that by combining them together with a little bit of, with a little bit of manganese, they create a material that is a kind of an, they say like a quantum um, halfway state between being a magnet and a semiconductor. So it's like half of both which could have a lot of interesting applications. Again, in computer technology, for example, anything that gives you control over the flow of electrons could potentially have a lot of applications, especially um, in in computer technology. So, you know, this is a sort of a basic science materials advance, but some of these um, have, 
incredible uh, applications long term. It's, it's hard to always imagine immediately what all the applications are going to be. Now it's a matter of just once you know, you perfect to the manufacturing process for different uh, industries and people to try to figure out ways to use it. And you know, that's where things get interesting. But they said right. that uh, Professor J.F. Detusa of Louisiana State University, who co-authored the paper, said, It's amazing that something which was thought to exist theoretically in mathematical physics could actually be found in an alloy, in an alloy which was simply formed by melting together a few common elements. Yeah, that's the thing that kind of mm-hmm. struck me about this, too, is that, you know, it's just iron and silicon. It's not like it's really some very advanced technology that they used to make it. And why wasn't it done already? Yeah, you would think, why didn't this happen 50 years ago? You know, well, something so slipped through the cracks, you know, just goes yeah. to show you there's still a lot out there to discover. Yeah. 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 That's why basic yeah. science is so important. Can't wait till yeah. they combine hydrogen yeah. and oxygen someday. <laughs> see, oh. what, yeah, <laughs> see what comes of that. <laughs> Dihydrogen oxide, big deal. And Bob, you, I think you were you were pretty close. So the the highest superconducting temperature we've achieved so far, it's around uh, liquid nitrogen. It's around that. Is that minus one seventy? So one hundred and thirty eight Kelvin, and that is a uh, mercury, thallium, barium, calcium, copper oxide. But Jeez. they claim that by applying pressure, they could get that up to 164 Kelvin, which is still about 109 below zero uh, Celsius. So, yeah, this would have been an increase of about 100 degrees Celsius. Or yeah, that, that, that would that's pretty significant. Mm. Yeah. Oh, man, yeah. One day, one day. Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? I indeed have a quote. This quote is uh, from the 14th Dalai Lama. The mm-hmm. Dalai Lama, who is uh, is the revered spiritual leader of the Tibetans. And he actually is a pretty interesting guy. You should do a little reading on him. And he said, To defy the authority of empirical evidence is to disqualify oneself as someone worthy of critical engagement in a dialogue. The 14th Dalai Lama! You know what else he told me? He said, When you die... You will achieve total consciousness. Total consciousness. Oh, I got that going for me. <laughs> And that, that <laughs> quote was sent in by a listener. His name is Robert Reppy. So next weekend, we will be at DragonCon, uh, Bob, Evan, and I. So again, if you can join us in Atlanta, Georgia, it should be a lot of fun. Uh, we'll be recording a live show. Derek from Skepticality will be joining us, and Swoopy, if she has time. The two of them are basically running the event, so they're going to be extremely busy. But Derek at least said that he would uh, have time to sit down with us as we record a live show. And we'll be giving lectures and you know meeting and greeting our listeners. So if you can, come and see us. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me again. Thanks, our pleasure. Steve. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> and until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. 
If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. 